This episode of Out Alive is brought to you by Backpacker Basecamp. Go beyond the pages of Backpacker Magazine and join Backpacker Basecamp. Our new membership program connects you with exclusive benefits to get you out even more. Gear deals, video tutorials, exclusive newsletters, expert advice, members-only giveaways, and more. Join today at backpacker.com slash Basecamp. Hi, you're dead. If a rattlesnake struck at you when I was starting to say the word hi, you would be envenomated before you even heard the eye. Rattlers accelerate 10 times faster than a drag racer. They're that fast. Bang, fang, you're dead. Okay, I'm exaggerating a little bit. Not about the speed, that's legit, but about the dead part. The numbers are pretty compelling. There are seven to 8,000 venomous snake bites in the U.S. each year, but only five or six fatalities, mostly because of good access to antivenom. So even if you do get bit, your odds of survival are pretty good if you can get to the hospital quickly. But what if you can't? What if you get bit by a rattlesnake and you're far from help with no cell reception? Scott Von Cannon found himself in exactly that situation and almost became one of those unlucky half dozen. I made a decision to survive. You're in that survival mode. The, the idea of dying wasn't in my head. I knew immediately it was a worst case scenario. I was in a fight for my life situation. Whenever you walk out on these trails, you're in their house. I'm Louisa Albanese, and you're listening to Out Alive by Backpacker. In each episode of this podcast, we'll bring you real stories of real people who survived the unsurvivable. I saw the rope zip through the rappel ring, and I couldn't do anything. Learn what went wrong, what went right, and how you can escape if the worst-case scenario happens to you. There is no way we would find anybody alive. Fans of this podcast know that these survival stories are always miraculous in their own way. But this one is different. Scott was bit in the leg when he was alone and in the North Carolina backcountry without cell reception, and no one knew exactly where he was. After reviewing his story, experts we interviewed told us point blank that Scott should have died. As the venom took hold, his legs stopped working, his blood pressure tanked, his vision blurred, and yet he hung on and kept going. But let's start at the beginning. Scott and his Aussie shepherd dog Boone were out on a day hike on the Ellicott Rock Trail near Highlands, North Carolina. It was a beautiful day. Chose Ellicott Rock uh, Wilderness Trail out of a hiking book and called my wife, Nan, to let her know that uh, Boone and I were gonna go for a hike. And so drove, drove down to the trail uh, and got there about 11 o'clock that morning and started our hike. Two hours in and I had come through a real shady area and stopped and I could see the Chattooga River about uh, a quarter of a mile away. And Boone, my dog, paired off to the right chasing off a squirrel or chipmunk or whatever, and uh, I was sort of surveying the, the situation. I took one step, and as I took a step, I saw the snake's head come up. No time to react, and he hit me in the left calf right on the side of my leg, and it just in just a split second. I've been around in the woods a lot, seen a lot of rattlesnakes, a lot of copperheads, a lot of black snakes. I always keep my eyes open for them, but this one was just basking by the trail in some leaf litter and was very camouflaged, and it never rattled, not one time. 
just hit my leg so quick and so hard. It was like uh, someone taking a limb or a stick and just hitting it, whacking my leg as hard as they could. Immediately, you know, I jumped back as, as far as I could, pulled my pant leg up and looked down and I saw the two fang marks in my leg. And then I got out a bandana out of my backpack and tied a tourniquet on above the bite on the outside of my pant leg. And during this time, my dog had come over to see what, you know, the commotion was. The snake had recoiled and I looked down, I could tell it was a rattlesnake. When I stood up, I could actually feel the, the, the back of my throat getting numb and a, uh, a weird taste in the back of my throat. You know, it was almost like I'd been given 10 shots of Novocaine in my throat all at one time. I started getting blurred vision, started to sweat on my forehead. And I thought that was unusual because I, everything I'd always read, you know, is you had a certain amount of time before the poison reacted uh, to your body. Snake bite symptoms like the one Scott's describing tend to become noticeable within the first 15 to 30 minutes after a bite. But the venom can reach the bloodstream much more quickly if fangs directly puncture a vein. I pulled my phone out to call 911 and of course it said no cell service. And at that point it was one o'clock. I decided to try to make it back towards my truck or at least get far enough where I could get a signal on my cell phone. So I started hiking back up a mountain towards my truck. In the event of a bite, experts recommend seeking medical attention immediately. Victims should try and keep their heart rate down, keep the wound below the heart, and never attempt to suck, cut, or flush the venom out. I calculated I made it about a quarter of a mile before my body gave out. Started crawling and pulling myself up the trail. And I got to a flat area and I took my pack off, got my bottled water out and just sort of collapsed on the side of the uh, trail with my back against the mountain. And of course my dog laid down beside me. After a few moments, I got nauseous and started to throw up. And after the second time throwing up, I passed out. Turns out that rattlesnake venom is pretty complex stuff. It's made up of toxic proteins meant to devastate their victims in a number of different ways. A really oversimplified explanation is that these toxins lower your blood pressure, destroy your blood cells, inhibit muscle control, damage tissue and organs, and left untreated, they can cause a total organ shutdown. Came to a while later, my dog was uh, licking me in the face. And then I just rolled back over. I took a few sips of water, looked at my phone. It was about right around two o'clock. I started to notice that my, my leg was hurting pretty badly at that point. And, but then my uh, internal organs started really to be painful. I was almost like I was being stabbed in the stomach with uh, a knife. I uh, lost control of off bodily functions at that point. I tried to stand up to use the restroom and I couldn't. I uh, couldn't maintain my balance, uh, so I collapsed back down to the ground. 
And, you know, as soon as I, as soon as I hit the ground, I started praying. Even in his panic, Scott had a glimmer of hope. His wife, Nan, was meant to meet him at their nearby vacation home later that afternoon. Nan was supposed to be there at four. I wasn't sure, you know, what she would do. I was just hoping and praying that she would do the right thing. I got to our house. Um, his car wasn't there, so I thought, well, you know, he should be back by now. We had plans that evening to go out to dinner. I was a little frustrated and kind of mad at him but um, his computer was open and the hiking book was open up to the Ellicott Rock hike. I don't ever leave that hiking book open. I would have carried it with me or put it back in the book holder, but uh, for some reason I left it open that day. I'm really glad that the book was there because I actually used the book directions to get down to the trailhead and I saw his truck and uh, my heart just sank. I just really kind of knew something was wrong. So I walked down the trail a little bit. It was uh, super overgrown, so it didn't look like it was a trail people frequented a lot. I called out for him, I called out for Boone. No answer, and you know, I'm in my traveling clothes, I got my sandals on, so I thought I can't hike in anymore. And I really didn't know what to do. So I'm driving into town and passed by the Highland Hiker, which is a store Scott always went in. He was in there all the time, and that's where the book came from that he had used to find the trail. So I thought, I'll just pull in here and ask him about the trail to see if it was dangerous, you know? All these things are going through my mind, like, did he have a heart attack? Did he fall off a waterfall? I just didn't know. So I went in there, and I told him my concerns. He said, well, you know, just go back to your house, wait until, um, told me to wait till 6.30 and then call 911. I went back to our house and um, I waited and, you know, every car that came around the curb, I was um, checking to see if it was Scott and I was just getting more and more concerned. Um, so at five o'clock May, the lady from the hiking store called me and said, have you heard from Scott? And you know, I said, no. And she said, well, don't worry about calling 911. Um, uh, I'll call Ryan. As luck would have it, the owner of the Highland hiker son-in-law was the chief of Highland's fire and rescue. Here's Chief Gerhardt. My mother-in-law called me and she said, we have had a a lady come in that is concerned about her husband that he's overdue from hiking. I contacted my rescue captain, who is a very avid hiker and has hiked that trail quite often, Eric Pearson. It was about five or so that evening when I got contacted by uh, my chief, uh, Ryan Gerhardt. Um, you know, I wasn't too sure what the circumstances were. So I mentioned to him that if we hadn't heard back from him about an hour, um, I would go down and see and then uh, let him know if I'd found anything. In the meantime, Scott and Boone remained on the side of the trail, unable to move. Scott's condition worsened with each passing hour. So around 5.30 that evening, I got my phone out and I made a, recorded a goodbye video and just told him that I didn't think I would make, make it out. Hey, Sheart, I love you so much. I got bit by a snake. I can't move hardly anything. My dog and I took off, and 
went down there. It's, you know, it's probably a 30 minute drive or so from town and I uh, got down in there and his vehicle's there. So I radioed that I was headed in. I don't know if I'm gonna make it out of here or not, but I do love you. My legs kill me. Once I got about two and a half, three miles in, I started seeing some foot tracks, but uh, they're all headed in. There were no foot tracks coming back out. I can't hardly breathe, but Boone's here with me. Ryan texted me and wanted to know if Scott would have taken a spur trail because his um, his guy, Eric, that had gone in to look for him, saw tracks going to the river, uh, but he didn't see any tracks coming out. So, of course, that I was super concerned then. Oh, God. Tell Jackson, Maggie, and Danielle, and Drake, I love, I love you. It's the best thing that ever happened to me. I texted him back. It was starting to get dark. I said, what, what do we do, Ryan, when it gets dark? I'll see you in heaven. I love you so much. Bye. It's starting to get dark about 7.30 uh, at that point and sort of semi-conscious and I hear my dog start to growl and then he went from a growl to a deep bark and out of the corner of my eye I see this black uh, blur come down the trail and my dog Boone takes off after it and they sort of meet then I see that it's a black lab and then I hear a voice uh, and it's a young man named Eric Pearson who was the searcher they sent in after me. He did uh, gain consciousness a bit when uh, when his dog got excited, started barking. He came around and I got to him. He said that he'd been bitten by a snake. First thing he said, he said, are you Scott? And I told him yes. And uh, he asked me what had happened. I told him I'd been bitten by a rattlesnake and I wasn't doing too well. I started assessing him. He was uh, having trouble breathing, very little pulse. I uh, was quite hypothermic. I asked him if he could build me a fire because I was I was shivering, I was hypothermic, and he said that he would, but he first he had to hike back up a little ways to get a signal on his two-way radio so he could call the paramedics to get them started down there. Around 7.40 or so, I heard Eric on the radio. He told me that he had found Scott and that he was alive but was not doing well. We deployed about 10 people down that way. We set up our command post right there at the at the beginning of the Ellicott Rock Trail. Once I got out, radioed for help, uh, went back to him, and basically I uh, got him a fire built, uh, tried to get him warm back up because, like I said, he was shivering stuff. He was in and out of consciousness. I mainly just had to maintain his consciousness for I think it took probably two, two and a half hours for any more help to get to me. So once they got there, we got him kind of established. We knew it was pretty much a pack and go. So his BP had decreased to probably 40, 50 maybe. He was in pretty bad shape. I could sometimes get to Eric by radio and, you know, I could hear a word or two here and there and just trying to relay everything back to our dispatch office. and. It was just, it was, uh, it was a nightmare. <laughs> I've been around it enough and just hearing them talking. I mean, it, it, I just, the way everything was playing out, it, it didn't look good for Scott. 
the four paramedics that got to me, uh, you know, they're, they're taking my pulse and my blood pressure. They realized that I was in a pretty serious uh, situation. They immediately uh, started an IV and uh, they uh, gave me a shot of epinephrine. Uh, they, they normally only carry one vial of epinephrine with them, but that night they had six vials. Uh, they had gone to the supply house two days earlier and had not put it in the storage cabinet at the fire station yet. They just left it in their kit. So they gave me um, a shot of epinephrine every 15 minutes and eventually used all six vials of epinephrine on me. So they had brought down a Rocon heavy-duty dirt bike, which they took a, a strap and tied my arms together around the driver and two of the paramedics ran behind the, the dirt bike, one holding the IV and one holding me on, and went about two miles up the trail that way. And all along the way, I could see guys with headlamps on. Later, I found out there were 24 rescue members that had came into the woods that night to get me out. I stayed out at the road and ran the command post. And Eric was giving me updates about every five to ten minutes as far as patient condition. It just, it, it, every report just kept getting a little bit worse and a little bit worse and a little bit worse. The time frame for the venom in his body, um, you don't know what kind of lasting uh, organ damage that may do. They gave like a 5% chance uh, he might pull out of it. So then they switched me over to a four-wheeler uh, the two paramedics were able to ride on the back corners of the four-wheeler and I was strapped onto the driver again. Uh, every once in a while we'd have to stop at a creek and, and then there were a few areas where they had to go over trees that they were not able to cut through. And they finally were able to get back to the trailhead at around 12 o'clock that night. Uh, there was an ambulance there. They lifted me off the uh, four-wheeler and put me on a gurney. At that point I was in and out of consciousness, but I remember uh, Lois Hancock, who was paramedic on the ambulance, um, telling the driver he was going to need to pull over and uh, she was going to need to intubate me at that point. What we were told when we got there was that they had already given him like five doses of epi because he was complaining that he had a swollen tongue and difficulty swallowing. And we knew at that point in time that the first thing we were going to want to do was to secure an airway, which is basically intubate him. And he was on the back of a four-wheeler, just listless. He was like laying all over the guy that was driving it. He, he didn't even hold himself up. When they got him off and laid him on the stretcher, the first thing he asked us was about his dog. Because his dog had been hiking with him. So I knew that I liked Scott right then and there. And once we intubated him, we had no further conversation with him. My blood pressure at that point was 47 over 28. Uh, so she couldn't give me any pain medicine to intubate me. And uh, at that point, uh, I pretty much went unconscious. I was very concerned what the outcome would be. Um, I was very concerned that he would not make it that if we did not get him somewhere fast so that he could get anti-venom and get more definitive treatment than what we could offer in the field, that he was going to die. I, it was a definite in my mind that um, 
this man's going to die on us if we don't get him somewhere fast. They had landed a uh, helicopter about uh, two miles away in a horse pasture. So they were transporting me to the helicopter and then it took off and was taking me to Asheville, North Carolina. The helicopter that we used does not carry antivenom. And whenever he came, whenever we finally got him out of the woods and transferred him over onto the helicopter, I, I didn't have much hope for Scott, to be honest. I didn't have much hope at all. His pressure was as low as the 50s at times. And we basically secured an airway, gave him fluids and pressures, and gave him a fast ride. The only part of the, on the helicopter ride that I remember was Lois Hancock took one of her gloved hands, and of course she had her uh, flight helmet on, and she opened my left eye, and she spoke directly into me. She said, I know, I know you're in there. She said, stay with me. We're almost to the hospital. She said, I know you can make it. And, you know, that gave me a uh, desire to hold on a little bit longer. We lifted at 12.32, and we were at the hospital at 12.59, and he was in the ER at 103. But I still, for the first few hours, wouldn't have been surprised at all if he had not made it. It took about an hour and 38 minutes exactly to, to get over to the hospital in Asheville. The doctor came in to talk to me before I got to see him and let me know that they were gonna do the best they could. He was in really bad shape. I didn't know how serious it was until that moment. And then shortly after the chaplain came from the hospital and that's when we, we knew it was probably a little more serious than any of us really had anticipated. The chaplain led me and my daughter and son-in-law into the room. And my daughter will tell you it's just a regular ER room. To me, it felt really surreal. It felt like it was just a dark room with a, you know, a spotlight right on Scott. He was covered up, everything. Um, all we could see were his eyes. He, of course, um, you know, had the ventilator in at that time. And we um, talked to him. We let him know we were there and we loved him. I woke up in the ICU uh, about two and a half days later. Uh, I was on a ventilator. Uh, I couldn't talk, of course. I remember my son coming up and uh, grabbing my hand and uh, squeezing it and saying, you know, Pops, we've got this, you know. And, uh, you know, I think uh, knowing that, uh, you know, I had a family that loved and supported me uh, really got me through it. The thought of him lying out on that trail and all that time that it took for someone to find him, I just couldn't imagine what he went through laying there as sick as he was, not sure if he was going to make it off the trail alive. I spent a total of uh, six days in the ICU unit. They had told me that they had used 12 doses of the antivenom on me and uh, they normally use four uh, doses for a regular snake bite victim and uh, they never had recalled uh, anyone going 12 and a half hours uh, without any type of uh, anti-venom. They determined later on that uh, when the rattlesnake bit me that it actually had hit a vein 
and that's why the poison had reacted so quickly in my bloodstream. Basically, my liver had shut down, my kidneys had shut down, I'd gone into cardiac collapse. My intestines had basically quit working and they were gonna have to rebuild themselves. And it took me from August 22nd to around Thanksgiving of this past year to fully recuperate from all the uh, injuries that I'd suffered from the snake bite. To my knowledge and my 20 years of service here, I believe that that's the first rattlesnake. I think everybody around our area was really, their eyes really open to this whole deal of the, we're in there, we're in the snake's living room. You know, whenever you walk out on these trails, you're in, you're in their house. I'd say the best thing that I did that day was to text Nan and let her know that I was going on a hike and whatever reason leaving the hiking book open to the trailhead to where I was uh, going that was you know just uh, something I wouldn't normally do. People ask me why did you go into that Highland hike or why did you not do this or why did you do that and honestly I just felt guided it was almost like I was on autopilot and something just said turn in here and I just happened to meet these wonderful ladies who took care of me all these little things just kind of slipped into place so that we could get Scott out of there. So it was just kind of a really surreal feeling. It feels bizarre talking about it right now. It feels kind of like I'm talking about somebody else, um, but we're really grateful it ended up like this. This episode was produced by me, Louisa Albanese, along with Zoe Gates and Amelia Arvison. Sound design is by Matt Codere. Our sound editor is Christopher Wright from Work at Bird Studios. Our sound mixer is Jason McDaniel from Electric Audio Inc. Our intern is David Gleisner. Thank you to Scott and Nan Van Cannon, to Chief Ryan Gerhardt, Eric Pearson, and Lois Hancock for sharing your stories. And thank you to the Highland and Glenville Cashiers Fire and Rescue and really volunteer rescuers everywhere. You all are heroes. If you enjoyed this episode of Out Alive, please subscribe and leave us a review.